0: This episode, Hole in the Air, invites you to contemplate the moral leadership of Gandhi and what it might mean for us today. Our special guest was Vivek Sharma, a professor of political science who has taught at such renowned schools as Columbia University, Pomona College, Pitzer College, the University of Copenhagen, and Yale University. Our podcast team that day in mid May 2019 included Paul Michael Newman, Gary De La Rosa, and They Who Remain Silent, Renee Nahum, and Susan O'Leary. Hello, everyone. We are welcoming our mighty audience. to a, another episode of our podcast which may well be called Hole in the Air, Conceivably <laughs> with Silver Lake, and Amuncine, or who knows what. I feel like we look at, I feel like I'm looking at a, a map from last century looking at names and boundaries that no longer exist. So whatever this podcast will be called by the time it's released, which should be soon uh, only time will tell. What's, uh, what we can tell you now is that we have a phenomenal guest, uh, special guest. We have other participants, at least one or two. Um, My name is Paul Michael Newman. Um, We are joined today by Dr. Vivek Sharma, who has a glorious history of teaching at some of the most famous and well-regarded educational institutions in the world. Um, That doesn't mean he's responsible for the huge financial debt that's <laughs> must shoulder. <clears throat> In fact, he probably has some great solutions for that, but we're not touching on those issues today. Uh, we're also joined by Gary De La Rosa, who's a human relations advocate for the City of Los Angeles. We may hear more about what that means later on, but we're, uh, for, the, for today, we're really focusing on, among other things, Gandhi, uh, who whether or not he was a towering figure literally, physically um, it's an interesting question I suppose but he certainly is. I think it's fair to say a towering figure in terms of of, uh, influence and stature and resonance and also sometimes the, the sense of contradictions we might have about what it means to live to be mortal and to be moral and to provide leadership in very confusing times which include today so in a sense I think that's something along the lines of what we're going to be discussing but I'm going to turn this over to Vivek and uh, hear what he has to say on such subjects and we'll see where the conversation leads
1: Well thank you uh, very much Paul Um, yeah it's an opportune time to be uh, thinking about Uh, Gandhi and uh, the Indian nationalist movement uh, for two principal reasons. I mean, the first is that uh, quite literally the uh, Indian uh, elections uh, of 2019, the national elections, have ended today. And so for the next few days, uh, much of the subcontinent and uh, observers of Indian politics Uh, will be biting their nails and sitting on their hands. Um, It is beginning to look like uh, that the uh, Hindu right government will be re-elected. And it's uh, worth pointing out uh, that the Hindu right uh, party, the BJP, is actually the direct lineal descendant of the Hindu nationalist movement that ultimately ended up uh, taking Gandhi's life uh, in in 1948. And so it's an interesting moment uh, to contemplate
0: the long-term outcome uh, of Gandhi's politics. And let let me just interrupt to say that this exact moment, because who knows when somebody will be listening to this recording, uh, this podcast... uh, the exact moment is May nineteenth. 19th. 19th, that's right. And we will thousand nineteen.
1: And we will uh, probably know in the next week or so what the outcome of the election is. And um, and it's an unexpected moment uh, in in global politics. Um, it's not merely uh, that this particular week uh, we have um, the descendants of uh, Gandhi's. Assassins uh, and his uh, and his his formidable enemies uh, from the 1920s and 30s uh, returning to power for a second time uh, in India, but we're looking sort of at a global march of uh, anti-liberal and a-liberal tendencies uh, throughout the world, in, including in the United States. And interestingly enough, um, the sorts of issues that Gandhi had struggled with. Um, really particularly between 1915 and 1948, uh, the period of his ministry in India um, after his return from South Africa. I mean, interestingly enough, most of the themes of how do you construct an, an equitable society, an equitable politics, a fair political system that both recognizes individual dignity but also the rights of communal groups to exercise um, their historical rights to be whoever they are, to celebrate their, their festivals as they would like, to have their own rules and regulations relating to marriage, to human relations, to eating. Um, the kinds of questions that Gandhi struggled with are becoming... Surprisingly, much more relevant for modern America, and frankly for 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 modern Europe, both the United States and Europe are becoming increasingly more pluralistic and increasingly more multicultural, and so there may be some advantage in in returning to look at uh, Gandhi and his struggles in the early 20th century to see what it is that perhaps his life and his his experiments with with moral leadership have to teach us in in this age as we go into the 2020 primary season and then eventually the elections. So Gandhi commenced his ministry in a very different place than most probably listeners uh, to this podcast would have. I would suspect that for the vast majority of listeners uh, to this podcast, we would take for granted that in the realm of politics, what constitutes equity and fairness is being treated as an individual, separate from one's identity, whether it be race or gender or sexual orientation or ethnicity, the overarching structure of the American government and political system, at least until now, had been geared towards keeping group-level identities separate from how it is that the individual outcomes of the political system are, are realized. Gandhi started and had to start in a very different kind of place, India, of course, had been pluralistic from the very beginning. Um, By the early 20th century, India's pluralism had been established for several thousand years at that point. And the notion, the liberal notion, that in the realm of politics, everyone is an individual is not one that would have resonated with the vast majority of the residents of South Asia. In fact, it's worth emphasizing that the only true liberals in India in the early 20th century and even today are highly educated westernized elites. No one else in South Asia thought that equity would be achieved by treating everyone as an individual. If anything, in South Asia, the notion that an individual could have any rights outside of the context of the group would have been alien <clears throat> and and surprising. So, Gandhi was never a liberal in that sense. It would not have made a lot of sense for him to have been a liberal. I mean, there were people in the Congress party who were actual liberals, uh, Nehru in, in particular. But by and large, the arguments in South Asia in the early 20th century were not about group identity versus individual rights but really about the relationship between the various groups as they existed in India. And I think it is this struggle to construct a political framework in which you could have equitable and fair relations between different groups. That was the central dilemma of the independence movement, but really, of quite frankly, of the totality of of South Asian politics. And that is... The part I think of Gandhi's story and of the uh, the story of the early 20th century in India that brought that, that is relevant uh, to contemporary Americans as as we are struggling in this day and age with how to manage an increasingly pluralistic society in which we are increasingly recognizing. The, the rights of groups, not just of individuals. How are we to construct a fair and equitable politics? I think that's, that, 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 that is where the, the relevance for, for, for the modern era uh, lies. Now, returning to, to, this, to, to the context in which Gandhi began his ministry, it is, of course, well understood, uh, but worth reemphasizing, that that Gandhi began his his political journey in a religious space. And that absolutely has to be emphasized. For for Gandhi and for most of the the, the, the non-secular Indian politicians of the early twentieth century, they took it for granted that religion was more fundamental than social structure, and that so, and both of those were more fundamental than politics. In a very interesting way, Gandhi, but not Nehru, but but Gandhi and a very substantial portion of the Indian nationalist movement in the early twentieth century, very much viewed politics as being epiphenomenal, right? So, being an outcome of deeper social forces. For Gandhi, ultimately. And it's worth. And perhaps we can have a conversation about this in the context of the civil rights movement. But for Gandhi, the the, the you know much of what we consider to be important—laws, rules, formal regulations—the relationship of the state to the society—those were questions that were ultimately irrelevant. Well, maybe that's not quite accurate. Maybe not irrelevant but simply an outcome of other deeper forces. That if you resolved the religious issues, the moral, the ethical issues, if you resolved the communal relations between these various groups, then the politics just settles itself and is not terribly interesting. I mean, it's worth noting that on the very day that India received independence in 1948, Gandhi was nowhere near Delhi. He was in the countryside in Bengal, several thousand kilometers away from Delhi, because he didn't think that being in Delhi was the most important thing to be a place to be. The political independence of India, in other words, was never really the the primary objective. It's worth stating that pretty much no one else in India viewed it quite that way. So Nehru and the other you know senior lieutenants in the Congress Party, in particular Rajendra Prashad and Raja these characters viewed the social reforms that Gandhi was working on as being something that could wait until after independence. so for them the entire the entire emphasis was attaining political independence from the British. And once the British left, they figured that untouchability and Hindu-Muslim relations and discrimination and gender relations, all of these would resolve themselves um, once, once the British left. Interestingly enough, Gandhi never thought that. Gandhi thought that the independence would be irrelevant once Indians had worked out their internal problems. For Gandhi, there were really two principal problems. Interestingly enough, neither of which was really shared um, by Nehru or other senior congress leaders. The first issue was the Hindu-Muslim relationship. That obviously was, 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 was front and center of Gandhi's life from the very beginning. And you know, we can talk a little bit about the background of that uh, in, you know, a little bit later. And then the second issue was untouchability. Uh, that he that he that he had to address, and it's worth stating again that even as late as 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 1947 and 1948, most of the senior leadership in the Congress Party would not have agreed with Gandhi that reforming untouchability and addressing the caste system was fundamental to the health of any independent India. In other words, more important. That being independent for Gandhi was reformation of the society right of the ethics of the morality of the way in which people dealt with one another in a in, on, on, on on a daily basis on the streets in the temples right in restaurants that kind of thing mattered a lot more to Gandhi than sort of the the, the, the high politics of you know writing pol- political structures in a particular way. Now, it's worth pointing out that mo- for most of the Indian population, and certainly for myself, most of us viewed Gandhi's principal contribution as being an independence leader, even though Gandhi himself did not think that that was the most important thing. And it's worth pointing out, and it's worth assessing, I think, you know, whether or not Gandhi might have been on something. I mean, in the end, Gandhi lost that argument. In the end, the Congress Party did focus on independence first and reform later. And indeed, as, as the, the spokespeople, particular uh, Dr. Mbeitker, uh for the Untouchables, had feared um, that, that not addressing the, 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 the political structural issues uh, in, in, in the 1940s when the Indian Constitution was being written would actually end up having long-term devastating consequences for untouchability. I mean, the most important one of which is that untouchability is still very much a live wire uh, in, in India.
2: Uh, yeah. Well, so okay. real quick, that's an interesting uh, point that you made there, could reform have occurred under British rule?
1: So I mean, th- th- that is a th- that's a much more interesting question now um, than I used to think mm. it, it was. Um, it used to seem so. So in the context of the United States, I think one of the principal lessons that we've learned from Donald Trump, what, and I think that most of us did not know before is that the, the the formal structure of politics is less important than the normative frameworks that the individuals inside the system have. So you can design the most fair and equitable system right. in, in principle, huh. but it will not actually make any difference if the people who are actually running the institution are morally... Suspect, uh, lacking the political will. <laughs> I, I, I think. I think, and I think that interestingly enough, Gandhi seems to have never thought otherwise. Gandhi, see, and which is interesting, because he was a lawyer, so one would have assumed that with his legal training in London, that he would have been much more focused on formal institutional design, Right. which is actually what was the case with Nehru. I mean, Nehru loved sitting around thinking about Mm -hmm. do we have two chambers in the House? Do we have three chambers? Do we have elections every four years? Do we have every six years? I Mm -hmm. mean, just classic. I mean, you know, one could imagine our current governor loving that, right? (laughs) I mean, just sitting around Gavin Newsom Mm -hmm. designing with a piece of paper, you know, how do you you set up the perfect political structure? But Gandhi Mm -hmm. actually never thought that that was important. And and as I have gotten older, and frankly, as I've experienced the Trump age um, up front and personally, um, I've begun to wonder whether he might not have been right. You know mm-hmm. that that who really cares about the institutional design if people, if, a, if if a substantial portion of the population can't even go into a temple you know, where there's social prejudices of such an order that 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 it's yeah, it it would not seem effective. Simply write legislation while the the daily prejudice of the prejudice of the caste system or of the of the religious of the religious communities were permitted to simply perpetuate themselves. Of course the, the fundamental dilemma in India as it is here is whether or not these traditional groups had a right to their own idiosyncratic practices. I mean, is it really the, is it correct for the state to compel ancient religious orders to be something that they are not, which was inclusive and most Indian religious organizations were not inclusive. They were not designed to be inclusive. They were not supposed to be inclusive. And in the general framework of Hinduism, that was less problematic than it would have been in Islam, Christianity, or, or Judaism, right? Because just the very different kinds of religious structures. I mean, ultimately in India, all religion was local all religion was 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 idiosyncratic so the so there wasn't this mainstream hinduism that dalits i mean meaning the untouchables were excluded from it's just that they weren't allowed into that into the public spaces of brahmanical hinduism but they still had religious spaces I mean, it's it's a bigger it's a bigger, bigger tent but nonetheless for gandhi this idea of writing legislation forcing the temples to admit Dalits seemed to be nonsensical, or rather putting the the cart before the horse. Much more important for him was being on the streets and shaming people, engaging in direct action, to, to engage in a conversation internally using the language of religion. Because Gandhi did not go and fight with these priests as a secular liberal he went and fought as an alternative vision of what constitutes Orthodox. So he's speaking their language, they just don't like it. Versus 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 Nehru, who comes across to to Orthodox Hindus as if he had come from, well, Cambridge, which is exactly where he came from, right? And, and Haram, who just didn't understand all of this and found it very frustrating to have to engage in a conversation with religious group. But, but I still think that from from, from the context of, of contemporary America, the, the, the key the key issue that was never resolved either by Gandhi or by Nehru or by anybody else in Indian politics is how do you simultaneously ensure individual human dignity before the law while acknowledging the real value and importance and significance of traditional pluralistic groups, whether they be religious or ethnic or, or, or linguistic actually in, mm-hmm. in, in the Indian context. So do you grant group rights? or do you insist that the, 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 that, that the ancient practices of these groups collide, with a overwhelming public necessity to to get rid of them. And and it's worth pointing out that it is worth stating this in the clearest language possible. Gandhi was trying to effect a voluntary social revolution in India. He wanted people to change their behavior, he wanted them to change their minds, he wanted them to change their hearts. And typically, the magnitude of those kinds of changes have historically occurred through violence. Social revolutions do occur in human history. They tend to be really ugly with a lot of dead bodies <laughs> yeah. in, in between, whether it's from the left or the right. I mean, you don't get social. I mean, the one thing that does seem to be true is that social revolutions tend not to be pretty. Um and in Gandhi's case, it was especially a difficult task, and one that we empathize with in the contemporary United States, because we too want a social revolution here. The left sit, we're sitting in Los Angeles, right?
2: <laughs> Blue California. I think the right does too. But... Yeah, they
1: do too, but they want a different kind of social revolution. But we too want a social revolution. Yeah. But we just want, but we don't want to hurt anybody. We just want yeah. everybody to get along. And what we want is right, to create the space between the different groups where you acknowledge there is a legitimate Asian-American culture. Mm-hmm. culture. There is a legitimate Jewish-American culture. There is a legitimate Latino culture.
2: Chicano culture, Chicanal.
1: too. Exactly. But <laughs> what we're trying to do is to have the... that we, We're trying not to assault mm-hmm. those pluralist groups and yet still have space right. where everybody can meet in between engage with one another and then just go home at night without any problems, right? <laughs> and and here, and, you know, and, th- and this goes back to our previous discussion, here what ended up happening is a lot of the demographics that were opposed to this transformation in Los Angeles just left. And in India, obviously, that also happened, uh, but in a very different way with partition, where eventually, mm. right. in, in the case of <clears throat> India, the problems never do get resolved. They end up actually getting they, 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 are, they are partially dealt with through bloodletting on a staggering scale. Mm. And Gandhi's social revolution never happened. There's never a moment it in, in which the majority of caste Hindus, of upper middle class Hindus, uh, internalize Gandhi's moral message. I, I would say that the majority of even his own party, of the Congress party, Viewed Gandhi as being instrumentally important for independence because his nonviolent strategy mm. was brilliant uh, when applied to the British. But I do not think that the majority of uh, even the Congress Party endorsed his absolute view of nonviolence. Mm. I, I actually I know that that's not true. He they mm. did not. Uh, And I certainly do not think that they thought that the moral reformation of individuals in India was the path to a modern, developed, prosperous India. And in that case, it's it's an interesting question. I I mean, I think it's an open one as to whether or not Gandhi actually may have been right. It, It may not be the case that Gandhi would have gotten there. I mean, I don't know how you cause a social revolution by going village to village and talking to basically everybody you can you run into and trying to persuade over and over and over and over again to get them and to shame them. Uh, I'm not sure that that's a strategy that would have arrived at the outcome that Gandhi wanted, which was for people to wake up in one morning and say, you know what? That caste system, yeah, it's got to go, right? Uh, it's, today, I am not going to belong to the caste system, you know. Tomorrow, maybe, but today,
0: I will not. Yeah. Well, so, do you think that the the model of that model of going village to village, what have you, is easier to accomplish? I don't necessarily mean in India today but maybe in India today, uh, but is it easier to accomplish with social media, mm-hmm. or is it where where we have... Maybe we have different kinds of silos, what have mm-hmm. you, um, and loads of trolling and whatever, so <laughs> it's a confusing mess out there, but nonetheless, clearly, one doesn't have to... Uh, catch a bus and go somewhere else to have a, have uh, communications with that other place. Do you feel that the landscape at large that that there is a different a difference in terms of the applicability of those kinds of? Uh, yeah, so so I books? have I have spent
1: several decades now trying to think about this. And in my academic work, what I ended up having to do was to explain in pure theoretical language why the groups matter and why you can't get away from them. And, and so, so the, the premise of your question is, that, is that, that there's some misunderstanding that communication can resolve. So that if Hindus and Muslims just sat down and talked, it would be it would be all right. And it occurred to me fairly early on in my research and in my academic work, um, that that was not the right framing of the problem, that there was no misunderstanding between Hindus and Muslims, that they conflicted in a very fundamental way and that those conflicts could not be resolved merely by goodwill and, 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 and and to be well-meaning. And insofar as I have an ominous message from the Gandhi story and my own academic work for contemporary liberal America, it is exactly that, which is that if we decide that these groups that we have in our society are real and they have rights, then we are going to have to think through what the implications of that are Mm -hmm. going to be. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it, I'm just saying that it's not easy. And I think that a lot of people on the left in this contemporary environment think that there is a costless way in which to assert group identity. And I am here to tell you all that that's not true. <laughs> um, there is a cost. And in India... So so Gandhi and the Indian story is thats that... Is that constant dialogue doesn't lead anywhere and Gandhi, and the frustration of Gandhi's life is that he is willing to talk to everybody and anybody under all circumstances in fact i think you know much of his political mission is trying to simply talk to people and he spends a lot of time trying to talk to muslims and i don't think that jinnah the head of the Muslim League, and probably the person most responsible for partition, had any misunderstanding of what Gandhi stood for and what he wanted. They just disagreed fundamentally on the sociology of India, actually. I mean, Gandhi's argument, which is not wrong, um, was that you could not have a, a modern India based on a single identity which of course was literally true I mean there are hundreds of language groups there are at least half a dozen major religions in India it's a subcontinent you know and so this idea that you could have a sort of mainstream upper caste Hindu identity as the the stand in for all of India I mean that was a non-starter it also was just not equitable and and probably wrong morally. On the other hand, the only other move I think you could make logically is to then become a secular liberal, which is just to say, okay, it's fine, we love all these cultures, but when we're in the realm of politics, it doesn't matter, except for it does, as we know all the time. I mean, we can claim in the United States right now that being black Ought not to make any difference when you encounter the police, but we know, as a matter of daily reality, that that is just not true. It just that is just the way it is, and so so I don't know how we resolve that either here or how Gandhi and that cohort of people would have had legitimate answers to it. I, I think there's another way of saying what I'm I'm saying, which is that. Gandhi and the the early twentieth century struggle in India to balance between the realities of group identities and the the, the the simplicity and elegance of a liberal model of politics, they asked extremely interesting questions and they the, the struggle that they underwent to resolve these these, this dilemma, this fundamental dilemma of political design, is extremely interesting. But we have to acknowledge that they don't resolve it. All they do is present temporary answers to solution uh, to, 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 to problems. And those temporary answers are not solutions. They're just placeholders until you get to a certain point where maybe somebody has a better idea. I, I, I hate to end on, on this part of the conversation <laughs> on uh, this, uh, this pessimistic note. But it's one of, the, one of the lovely things about American culture and, and American attitudes is that we've always thought that if there's a problem in the world, there must be a solution. You just have to think about it hard enough. And if you don't come up with a solution, then it's because you're just not working hard enough. But but with Gandhi, looking at Gandhi and looking at identity politics and looking at the struggles of the early 20th century in India, I'm not sure we, we get to walk away with that conclusion. I mean, the conclusion I actually... Uh, am reluctantly coming to, is that perhaps one of the beautiful things about politics is precisely that there are not necessarily solutions right, to 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 these deep
0: problems. I think the, possibly another part, though albeit related, of the American psyche is call it the Rick and Casablanca uh, notion that uh, Americans, at least initially want to stay out of it, want to be neutral think that there's some existential value in, in being neutral uh, and whether it's rising above or staying below or, or separate from conflict and and yet part of that Casablanca story of course is that yeah. for whatever reason and there are a number that ultimately the character swayed into a wholehearted kind of joining into the fray. Um, but I, I, I want to ask you if you want if you want to touch on that, feel free. But I also want to ask you. Um, I want to ask you about nonviolence mm-hmm. because we're talking about Gandhi uh, and how he really was game to talk to anybody and everybody. Yeah. Uh, but there is that part of of uh, him that certainly I think of first and foremost when I. Think of Gandhi. Maybe that will change as a result of, as a result of this conversation. But it is is pacifism, is nonviolence yeah. as a as an activist uh, approach, uh, perhaps also as a philosophical bedrock. And so I would also ask, or I would ask, whether that pacifism, how that plays into the conversation yeah. that we're having now. I mean, so I, I
1: agree that um, for the outside world, so outside of India the most intriguing part of gandhi is this is his is this evolution towards not just nonviolence as a principle but to an actual political strategy and there's no question that it really is his great contribution to world civilization i mean there really isn't anything quite like it before And there have been, of course, imitators since. So so Gandhi's path, um, it's it's an interesting one. And and, uh, if I might say so, cinematically promising. (laughs) Um, So so Gandhi, when he arrives in London um, as a student, as a law student, I think it's fair to say he's a conventional... Elite Indian. He was the son of a prime minister of, uh, of an Indian princely state. Uh, obviously he was highly educated and he had access to the sorts of resources uh, that would permit uh, a sojourn in London uh, studying at the inner temple. And so the first problem, and, and I love this about Gandhi, um, and I love this about the story of Gandhi. The first problem that he has when he arrives in London is a very practical one, which is that he's a vegetarian <laughs> and and he's got to eat. And and so literally the first thing that he has to do when he gets to London is to work out where he's going to eat. And, you know, very fortunately at the the time in London, but also throughout the West... There were these intellectual currents of uh, vegetarianism, of of interest in in Eastern philosophy, of skepticism uh, towards Victorian values, and so Gandhi enters his entrance into politics is actually really through the 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 this, the meaning of 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 this British Western world of. Sort of progressive liberal politics and experimentations in in social life. I mean, Gandhi was, of course, never attracted to the Bloomsbury Circle, which, if you recall, was uh, I would think hedonistic would be an understatement. Uh, Gandhi would not have gotten along very well with them. But but he did get. But he did run into sort of liberal Christians and to liberal Jews in these communities. And this is where he began his political journey, his religious journey, but really his political journey, in actually vegetarian restaurants in London, and then Mm -hmm. later on in South Africa, where actually he met some of his closest companions. I mean, Colin Bach, who was uh, a German-Jewish a companion, actually, of of Gandhi's for 20 years. He just ran into him into a restaurant in Johannesburg, a vegetarian restaurant, and that began a conversation. So, So Gandhi's circle in London is this ecumenical, religious, liberal world where... Where Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Christians are meeting and talking about ethics and about religion, doing comparative religious studies effectively, he's attending lectures. He you know he meets Bertrand Russell, for example. He's aware of these intellectual currents. The second group of people that he runs into London, and so and this is home for him, right? These are the people he is comfortable with. These are the people that he learns from. Um, it's, it's, it, this is the, the, the group of people that introduce him to Russell and to Tolstoy. But there's another group of people running around London at the same time. And it provides for an extremely interesting contrast. And these are the militant Indian nationalists who have gone to London um, to acquire the credentials that would then enable them to return to India... And engage in actual violence. So, so these are the people who just want to kill British officials. They're, these are the ones that want to sabotage the railroads. And it's an extremely interesting and, and, and vibrant community in London where, you know, where where these young men of violence and aspirations are trying to work out an ideology of nationalist resistance. And so Gandhi encounters this very early on in London and his immediate reaction is one of repulsion, actually. Right? He immediately understands or he just intuitively feels that there's something really wrong uh, about this nationalist vision and this idea of killing uh, as a mechanism to obtaining uh, independence. And so basically Gandhi evolves... This, his, his, his I would say his theoretical thinking about non-violence in London through a dialogue with Indian nationalists and he rejects the Indian nationalist movement as, as represented by these young men of violence immediately and totally. But Gandhi, to his infinite credit, doesn't just walk away from them. He tries to engage them and draw them in. And he realizes pretty early on that he's going to need to provide an actual alternative. So if you're not going to kill British officials in India, well, then what? Are you simply going to accept British rule? Obviously, that was not acceptable. So Gandhi didn't just critique the violent Hindu nationalist movement that, you know, that he encountered in London, he also set out to provide an actual alternative. And the, his path there occurs really within the framework of him studying English common law because his daytime preoccupation is trying to understand how it, the evolution, the principles, and of course the actual content of British law. And so Gandhi, in a way that isn't true of the Hindu nationalists, is simultaneously thinking about Indian independence while doing a deep and empathetic study of British of British institutions. There's a second thing that has to be emphasized, which is that, and and this is a point that often gets lost uh in debates about Gandhi but it's worth remembering that Gandhi was born in a princely state he was not born in british india so there was not direct british rule where he lived and so Gandhi grew up in a milieu that where Br- the british were in india but they did not impinge on his daily life in any meaningful way. In fact, in 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 his childhood, it's highly likely that he would not have encountered more than a handful of white people, mm. um, because they would have no reason to be there. So, so in a sense, Gandhi is coming from a part of India that is less impacted by the directness of British rule. There are no British police officers running around. There's no, there is no ap- coercive apparatus in Gandhi's life. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of the nationalists who are running around London actually were coming from the major cities of India, in which they were dealing directly with the coercive aspects of, 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 of British rule. So, so Gandhi has a more luxurious attitude towards British rule which is that he doesn't see it as being inherently wrong. He has specific objections to British policies. He has specific objections to particular ways of doing things. And when he arrives in South Africa, he has specific objections to racism, or rather racism against Indians His attitude towards racism, towards black people, that's another, that's a, which we should address, Uh, but we'll put that to the side for the moment. So, so, so so Gandhi's nonviolence is driven, comes from two sources, I would say. One is, it is a, a, his objectives, political objectives was, at least in the beginning, was not the overthrow of the British Empire his political objective in the beginning was the reform of the British Empire to make it fulfill its proclaimed values it's very similar actually to the to the civil rights movement in the united states the idea of the civil rights movement the mainstream of the civil rights movement was not was not to overthrow the state but to get the state to actually act as it's uh, in in ways that were consistent with its stated values, and here's Gandhi looking at English common law and saying, "Yeah, this is actually an okay way of organizing a society. It would be really nice if you actually <laughs> implemented it <laughs> right? occasionally." Okay, yeah. But he's not saying at this point, and it takes him a long time actually to arrive at the British are morally incapable of reform; they need to leave. That that doesn't happen until quite late. Uh, in the game. So at this stage when he's thinking about nonviolence, he's simply thinking about how do you shame these people? And and the and the real insight that Gandhi had initially was that the tools of political contestation that you use in a in a limited political game of reform are different than if you're just trying to overthrow the system. So that's the first place, right? They don't agree. The Indian nationalists in that milieu did not agree with Gandhi on what the British Empire was and whether it was potentially a force for good or not. Gandhi, in the beginning, believed that it could be. The real problem was to get British officials to actually implement common law as he had studied it in London the the second the second source of 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 Gandhi's non of Gandhi's nonviolence was his understanding that british officialdom could be persuaded by using the internal language of british liberalism and so unlike hindu nationalists who adopted an aspect of the the language of modern european politics the nation and of course the cult of violence i mean which all young men or lots of young men across time and space are attracted to whereas gandhi seemed to understand that persuasion moral persuasion was an actually much more effective tool than 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 simply standing on a soapbox so- soapbox and screaming Now, when he arrived in South Africa after his sojourn in London and then he went back to India for for two years, he had worked out intellectually his position on violence, on nationalism, and on politics. And he had worked out a vision of politics in which it was essentially an extension of religion and of ethics. But he had not implemented or he had not evolved an actual strategy, a political machine to implement it. And that happens in South Africa. And that happens very much as a collaborative effort with other other liberal figures, most especially Colin Bach, his dear friend Colin Bach, the German Jewish. Uh, architect and, and philosopher, but also other figures, including you know CF Andrews, who was an Anglican priest and very much is a very dear and close companion. And so the the strategy of nonviolence, as it is actually as as a political strategy, as it emerges in South Africa, is is it does come largely from Gandhi but it's actually a collaborative effort, right? It's not somehow Gandhi uh, creating this thing from nothing. He is meeting other strains of thought, particularly in Western Europe, but also responding to the specifics of engaging the South African authorities in in these campaigns.
0: Now, you did say uh, that the... Uh, opposition he helped lead certainly the believe in regarding racism in South Africa when directed to the indian population yeah. wasn 't necessarily uh, uniformly yeah. applied mm-hmm. to race uh, regarding racism of other kinds in yeah. south africa can you talk yeah about that a
1: bit? so and this has obviously become a, a major issue in recent times um, in Africa. Uh, there are um, the Indian government has uh, had gifted uh, over time over several decades statues of Gandhis uh, at various university <laughs> campuses and there have been movements to to pull those statues down uh, precisely on these grounds that Gandhi was actually <laughs> quite condescending and racist actually uh, towards Native Africans so I think the way to think about this is that Gandhi accepted hierarchy as a young man. And it would have been very odd, frankly, if he hadn't. Because he had been born into one of the most hierarchical societies probably ever constructed. And the idea that he would somehow... Arrive innately at this notion that in the eyes of God all men are created equal. Mm-hmm. Um, that took him a while, and 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 it's not clear that he ever got there. So so Gandhi definitely accepted, and 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 it took him decades to sort of get over this this idea that there was an organic hierarchy on Earth. He was perfectly willing to accept that the British were at the top of that hierarchy in the beginning Mm -hmm. and that native peoples um, in this case, particularly Africans um, had to also accept that there was this hierarchy and that they were at the bottom. Gandhi's objection was not to the existence of hierarchy. Gandhi's objection was to the position of Indians uh, (laughs) in that hierarchy. (laughs) Um, He, he, uh, spent particularly in the early days of his uh, political uh, activities in South Africa, uh, he uh, openly stated that he what he found offensive was that Indians were treated exactly the same <laughs> as ah. as uh, as, uh, as uh, native Africans even though, um, uh, according to Gandhi, uh, Indians ought not to be on the basis of an ancient uh, culture that was, uh, uh, that was glorious and, and, and worthy of respect. So, so Gandhi's activities in South Africa are very, very limited in the sense that he does create this ecumenical world. It's an extension of his London days. It includes white people, but it does not include black people. So it's brown people and white people that create this ashram uh, in South Africa, which is really the political headquarters of the movement that that Gandhi uh, starts. But Gandhi's focus is entirely as really a labor and community organizer in the South Asian community. And if it's worth stating, I suppose it is worth stating, that Gandhi 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 had his hands full with Indian communalism internally and so addressing relations between Indians and native Africans might have been a bridge too far in other words much of Gandhi's problem political problem in South Africa was to get the various Indian communities to actually act as a unified whole
2: so um, this kind of brings to mind then uh, in this part of the discussion So uh, we're hearing that Gandhi wasn't perfect Mm. Um, therefore does it take away from what he did and should he have 120 years ago thought like we do today
1: so I mean I am comfortable I I mean there are two different versions of me right I mean there's the scholarly academic me and I take it for granted that the answer to that one is no. We, we do not get to impose on previous generations our, our values. Um, I take that for granted. Having said that, um, as a matter of, of actual politics, the question that we should probably ask of figures in the present but also in the past is whether it was possible for them to know better hmm. right? and in the case of Gandhi um, the answers to that are somewhat complicated hmm. um, I mean it takes him a, at the end of it's only really in the last four years of his life that Gandhi ends up taking positions that we, in sitting in Los Angeles in 2019, would endorse, which is complete opposition to the caste system. But it's worth stating that when he made that statement, it also did not have a political program behind it. Mm. Did you see what I'm saying? So he could say, yes, I'm against the caste system, but if your question is, well, what are you going to do about it? (laughs) The answer is nothing. And so the question is, are we satisfied with him having made the morally correct statement even though it politically was meaningless. Mm-hmm. Because there was if he could do something about it, that would be something else. But if there's nothing he can do about it, the question is, well, so what that he then said, yes, the caste system is terrible. Do you mm-hmm. see what I'm saying? Yeah. So so I think it's more interesting. I mean it it is a compelling individual story for how Gandhi eventually sort of arrives at a rejection of caste. But, and, and here I do not begrudge Gandhi. Gandhi was an Orthodox Hindu and he had a right to be an Orthodox mm-hmm. Hindu, right? And it's not easy to be an Orthodox Hindu and then to reject very substantial portions of at least the historical legacy of Hinduism and and for me as a non-believer of course it's simple to say well yeah i mean you know i mean the the, the ethical issue here is clear you cannot have right a, a society yeah. in which i mean 20% of the population you can't even touch Um, that clearly is wrong. I mean, the question is, if you love Hinduism, if you love Indian culture, if you love the music, the sounds, the poetry, how do you arrive at a place where you preserve that which is beautiful about Hinduism and traditional culture while rejecting all that is horrible
0: and 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 regressive right. well let me uh, try to approach this question a little differently. Um, I think we can agree that Gandhi had enough on his plate, yeah <laughs> and, and so we don't necessarily want to project views from as he said, I think he said one hundred and twenty mm-hmm. years later, um, even though there's the right to ask what should have been recognizable yes. at that moment in time, but he was also. Certainly, uh, a learned figure yes. and a global figure yes. especially when it was on the global stage he didn't get that Nobel Peace Prize but no. he was he, he should have he, and, and his name was floated out there in different yeah. ways at different times uh, he was born a, couple, a few years after the end of our American Civil War yeah. and was assassinated three years after the end of World War II yeah. which means that his life spanned a whole lot of stuff we could discuss. Certainly, we discussed what what was going on in South Africa, um, at least to the extent that we acknowledged that maybe he could have acknowledged more yeah. uh, the racism that was present uh, directed at uh, African uh, nationals. Um, but he also was around during World War One, World War Two, Hitler, yeah. the Armenian genocide. Oh, yeah. uh, all, all sorts of other stuff bad stuff and some good stuff and so my question is even while he had enough on his plate wonder, worrying about among other things Indian independence um, how did he touch on those global matters
1: yeah I mean, I mean that's an, it's an interesting uh, question um. So, the 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 first thing I think that has to be said is that Gandhi Gandhi's rhetoric, um, over time about nonviolence, becomes much more universal. So it begins as a specific response to the specific mm-hmm. problems of Indians dealing with the British government and it then becomes a much more general principle now the people around gandhi never went the full universal route right that nonviolence is is absolute gandhi is pretty much alone on that oh, even his closest friends, uh, Western friends, right, but also Indian friends, did not endorse that. And it's actually an interesting question too, as to whether Gandhi really himself believed it all the way, right? I mean, it's worth remembering that Gandhi had volunteered in the British Army during the Boer War, it was an ambulance corps, but still. He did not shoot anybody individually. He did not bear arms, but he participated in a violent suppression Mm -hmm. of a a local independence movement, actually, if if you want to be perfectly blunt. Um, On his way to India in 1915, um, he stopped in London. (coughs) And, of course, in 1915... Uh, the war was fully on its, uh, in, you know, it was beginning to to really heat up in Europe, and London uh, was full of wounded soldiers coming back from the front, and Gandhi organized an Indian ambulatory corps in London to take care of the of the British wounded. And finally, if you if you fast forward to the Second World War, um, Gandhi, in principle would have agreed to indian support for the british war effort in exchange for independence mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. so it's 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 not clear ex- yeah. exactly how purist he was i guess if i were to compare him to the buddha Right, hmm. he wasn't. <laughs> but I don't know that the Good Buddha one. is the standard right by which to judge any mortal human being. So so that that's the first point. It's not clear how absolute. But it is clear that um as fascism became an issue in the nineteen thirties in Europe, that Gandhi made outlandish unwelcome and and probably ludicrous statements about how to manage Hitler and how to manage the Japanese. And and in that sense, uh, he did try and claim that nonviolence and his political strategies were universal. And it caused enormous anguish Particularly to his very old Jewish friends who were sitting in mm. England, actually, in London, the Pollocks were sitting in London, getting bombed, listening to Gandhi make these wonderful pronouncements about how the British ought to handle Hitler or how Jews ought to handle Hitler. None of it was very welcome. It, it, it was, yeah. And if it makes anyone feel any better, not that it should it 's not clear that anybody around Gandhi really paid much attention to it it 's more that the the i mean the people around Gandhi hated Hitler and the Japanese, and they were they were frightened of it. They wanted the British to win, but they just wanted the British to make political concession. It was Gandhi who made the absolutist point, even though it's probably true that he would have agreed to Indian involvement in the Second World War in exchange for, for, for independence. So I think it's possible to say that Gandhi could be pedantic and irritatingly
2: pedantic,
1: <laughs> right? I mean, nobody wanted to hear what Gandhi thought about nonviolence with Hitler during the Holocaust. I mean, I'm not sure Gandhi
0: wanted to hear it either. But that's <laughs> a, another story. And I guess... I I want to ask you as well about the end of his life and not so much the assassination itself though that's a topic that seems to fascinate Americans in general um, that of assassination but um, how about just the general challenge of how to fundamentally shape the future for that region so I so
1: I think that from Gandhis from the from the from a strictly Gandhian standpoint Gandhi is not politically in charge in the 1940s in the way he had been in the 1930s. <laughs> and a lot of that had to do with the fact that As the independence movement evolved from being a protest movement to a movement that actually had to write an actual constitution, Gandhi tends to get more and more irritating, and I I mean this with love, right, and respect and empathy, to Nehru and Rajakapalachari and and Varijendra Prashad, the people who are actually putting together the nuts and the bolts, who are actually having to sit. In the committee rooms, like hammering the stuff out. Gandhi isn't doing any of that. In fact, Gandhi is sitting, you know, several thousand miles away. So 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 I think it's 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 correct to say that that Gandhi's input into the actual process of independence becomes more um more detached as time goes on. There's a second thing though and I think this is the part I would emphasize is that as so the the trajectory of Hindu-Muslim relations and violence in South Asia is towards increasing amounts of it over time. So between 1915 and say 1948 an actual partition the killing increases. It gets much worse. And Gandhi ends up spending almost all of his time in the last years of his life dealing with Hindu-Muslim violence away from Delhi. So, so in one sense, Gandhi becomes much more of the social worker towards the yeah. end of his life and much less the politician. It, in a sense, it's tragic because Gandhi gets blamed for the political outcomes as well. The the second thing, and this a- I think absolutely has to be emphasized, traditionally the way Indians have told the story, uh, and Attenborough did this as well. In the film. In the film, about. yeah. Th- is that the Hindu right is kind of there, but, but nobody gives it a name. Mm. It doesn't have a face. It's... It, uh, as if we wish it weren't there, right? And so there's this tendency to not give too much attention to the Hindu Mahasabha, which was the militant wing of the the Hindu right, um, or the RSS. Um, There's a tendency to wish that they would just go away. And and I think that that is a mistake. Um, I think we need to re we need to think about Gandhi's story as pluralism and its challenges getting worse rather than better over time. And so, so, so Gandhi is spending most of his, the latter part of his life combating the Hindu right. He always does that in a sense, because he's engaged in conversation and debates but in the last phase of his life, he's almost entirely in, living, actually, in Muslim-majority regions of India in which there's lots and lots of killing. And, and so it's right to say that Gandhi... that Gandhi disengages from politics, at the high politics, and becomes much more... Focused just on the ordinary suffering of Indian life. The last thing I would say is that Gandhi was, the specific trigger for Gandhi's assassination was the perception by the Hindu right and in particular um, by, you know, Nathuram Godse, the, the actual assassin, that Gandhi had played a role in the partition agreements that led India to give away to Muslims, to Pakistan, things. There was actually a specific issue. Um, the that you know the, the partition once partition had been agreed to, you are not just dividing land. I mean, in in the case mm. of of South Asia, you're you're literally dividing the government offices down to the to the paper clips, right? Mm. I mean, literally, the furniture of these offices were being split. And so the partition isn't just, you know, this abstract thing. Oh, you know, this province is going there. This province is going over there. You're dealing with, I mean, a staggering amount of petty planning that actually has to be done. And Gandhi's attitude, and, and as you can imagine, there's a lot of quarreling about that. Not just within the offices. No, that's a Hindu paperclip. No, that's a Muslim (laughs) paperclip. But also, right, you know, as you go up the the scale over things like the treasury. And Gandhi's position, even though Gandhi had been the, the one person who had been consistently and persistently opposed to partition, right? Gandhi, in the end, once partition happens, once it's a reality, his argument is to be graceful about it. He's like, you know, and and the Hindu right saw that as effectively a giveaway. You're just handing it over, you know, to the Muslims, um, even though it was not India's to hand over. In the partition agreement, this was the the joint property of the government of India that then had to be split into two different like portions. And and that's what it, that's what gets him killed. In fact, I think the Hindu right would say that Gandhi was remarkably effective as an independence leader. It's just he was getting in the way, right, once independence was achieved. I mean, in fact, that that was, you know, God says, actual position, which is that, you know, Gandhi had outlived his usefulness, actually, uh, is what, yeah. was, what their position was. He was great against the British... Just don't let him anywhere near Muslims because he might actually say something nice. About, no, but, but that's really what it, what, right. what it really comes down to. So, so Gandhi towards, his end of, towards the end of his life, I would say, is much more a religious and moral figure than he had been at the beginning of his life. I would almost say that for Gandhi, the principal tragedy of his life was politics it would have been easier and better and more rewarding for him if he never had to ever deal with, with these high political questions, but that was not the era he lived in and we don't get to choose the trials and travails.
2: So looking back, um, what is the sort of legacy that we could use today? Uh, to maybe, uh, you know, to our benefit. And uh, hearing you talk about, like, you know, pluralism and trying to have an identity, we've had that problem here since, yeah. well, before we were a country. Yeah. Um, and in Southern California, right, yeah. talk about diversity. Um, I used to make a joke when I was teaching California L.A. history that half my family was here to greet the other half of the family when they conquered us. That's why we're so goofed <laughs> up. So uh, give us a little...
1: So, I mean, th- this is obviously something, uh, you know, that I've been thinking a great deal about, uh, in part because I'm engaged with both Indian and American politics uh, deeply. Um, I, in an American political context, I had absorbed um, the dominant sort of liberal narrative um, and had accepted that. And I am now aware, as I've gotten older, that in, in accepting it, I was also signaling my satisfaction or at least contentment with a dominant sort of wasp culture mm-hmm. and just making my peace with it. And and that was never an option in India. So in a sense, I always thought about the U.S. as being very different because we started off with a dominant culture, and then the question was: Is there, Are we going to assimilate, or are we going to have a bunch of different groups, right, that, right. That, are, that are sort of interacting? And if the lesson was, you know, if the if the question, if you know, so, so back in the early '90s, I would have thought of India as more or less as a warning. To mm. the U.S., because once you operationalize these groups, it has unintended consequences. Right? right? It has its own logic at mm-hmm. that point. Um, and I was, I was also okay with 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 the by and large assimilation, not entirely, but by and large. In the case of of India, what you have is a wonderful example for us to talk about I think on the left in the United States about what it might actually look like um, if you do move to a more traditional pattern of, of communal pluralism right? mm-hmm. um, because LA today in lots of ways reminds me of Delhi oh, right? hey, yeah. uh, in a way that it didn't 25 years ago, mm. right? I mean, 25 years ago, you had, you know, basically a white city with a black minority and then other people. Um, but it wasn't truly pluralistic in the sense that you didn't have equal groups bumping up against one another. Relations between African Americans and whites were terrible and oppressive. Um, but contemporary L.A. Begin, is beginning to look much more like Delhi, right, where you can actually move between very distinct cultural zones. You can spend your afternoon in Mexico City, here in LA, no, <laughs> and you know, and then end up in you know, in, I don't know, Little India, right, yeah. I and mean, and make that journey across <clears throat> uh, uh, I mean, across time right. and, and in space. Whereas in India, um, it's kind of always been that way, and the the way it had historically worked in India was that you would actually I mean, you would you would institutionalize these these barriers across across time and space, and and I think that that it's not so much that 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 pluralism com, that pluralism come communalism can't work. Mm-hmm. It's just that it has specific issues associated with it, and I think that in the United States we should have that conversation. There's one last point that that, that I'd like to make and I and I and I know we've talked about this before but off off the podcast which is that one way um, that India has has managed to 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 deal with this pluralism um, and communalism is to treat caste Hindus as an ethnicity as well. Mm. Did you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's not the mainstream any longer. It's just one peculiar group among many. Mm. right? Mm-hmm. And I have been begun to think that one way that we deal with that, our issues here in the United States is that we begin to treat at least certain segments of the white population as being an ethnicity in their own right. <laughs> you know, with their own yeah. peculiarities. Which right? might be liberating. It might be, actually. And, it, and it would save us from the the, it would save us the trouble of having to force them to like us.
2: <laughs> well, well, if I might, you know, if I might throw in real quick, yeah. if you go back to Philadelphia, you go back to Boston, New York, those places, uh, Chicago, you have very, very definitive yeah. ethnic communities. Yeah. These are ethnic Euro Americans, yeah. but they come west of the Mississippi; they're white, yeah. Yeah. and that's the, they've meet, for many of them, they've reached their goal; they've yeah. become white. Yeah. So I think that there, there is a, a desire there was a, actually a book I found from 1970 the, the Rise of the Unmeldable Ethnics and it was about Euro ethnic Euro-Americans. Oh, yeah and, and he, he's now become a right-winger but at the time he was kind of open-minded and he was discussing this, what you're talking about right now. So there is a desire for some people to get away from that mm-hmm. and to become white. And so WASP culture when i was growing up was white and they were the culture yes they're not an ethnic group they're not you know but they are now yeah and and, but but the ethnic groups were the irish the polish the italians blah 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 blah. so i'm just throwing that it's it's been there it's it keeps getting you know swirled around maybe it's time for it to come back i I
1: think i think so too right because then then you're genuinely talking about just a a, a world in which there are just Different groups, right? Right. And every group, then we can establish rules. Okay, well, you these are the eccentricities you are permitted. Uh, <laughs> those are the weird prejudices you can have. Just don't please bring them into the public arena. You know, that, that, that
0: kind of thing, yeah. Uh, well, on that note, I feel like quoting the band, Life is a Carnival, believe it or not. Yes, uh, there you go. <laughs> I do want to thank. Uh, well, human relations advocate Carrie de la Rosa, thank you, and our treasured professor Dr. Vivek Sharma, oh, thank and this Paul Michael Newman. And uh, hopefully, everyone's uh, gotten a lot of information and insight. I feel like I have uh, so on that. Uh, inspiring note i'll just thank our guests and the audience for listening and thank you very much everyone and have a pleasant rest of day week month year life <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> oh, thank you all right
2: thank you for joining us for this podcast you can share a comment question or idea by emailing us at slannunciator at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you you can find more of our podcasts at slannunciator.com. Wherever you may be, have a lovely day.